right. Good evening. I'll start off with a verse here. A couple of verses, maybe four of them. Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youth grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. You know where that comes out of, don't you? (laughs) Isaiah. Oh, that is encouragement to us all. Are you doing that on the wall? There we go. That's where we need to be, right there. (laughs) Behind the couch. (laughs) Yeah, he gives. uh, He's the one who has the strength, and he's the one who gives it to us. It's it's waiting on him. Just just counting on him. And uh, he gives us the strength, and um, boy, that is that is great promise. Not only now, but uh, for eternity. But um, he is uh, he is the one with the strength. He is the one that uh, is not too weak to act on our behalf, is he? And uh, that's just some of the verses that uh, we might kind of hit on as we start our little study, I'll say, on Isaiah because it's going to be kind of uh, something different than we ordinarily do. We're not going to cover every verse, which I wish we could, but uh, this is a very lengthy book, 66 chapters and all. And, um, of course, the 39 chapters that it starts with, for the most part, is pretty heavy, dark, deep judgment upon sin. And... uh, then the last 27 kind of give us the good news. It's kind of like uh, what you see you know, in, in 39 books of the Old Testament, and you have 27 in the New Testament. And uh, however that may play out, uh, I don't know, I don't want to force that issue, but that's how I kind of divide up Isaiah and, and most do in, in, in that kind of sense, where we start seeing the light really come out. But all the way through those first 39 chapters, almost every chapter, even though it's telling bad news and judgment coming, within that same chapter usually is going to be good news and light, grace, (laughs) gospel right there. And so it's uh, one of the most amazing, powerful books that uh, one can ever read. And... Isaiah is great for two reasons, one man said. This is what one guy said. He says he lived in momentous days. He lived in critical days of international upheaval. And he wrote what many consider to be the greatest book of the Old Testament. And another one said, we see Isaiah move with fearless dignity through the chaos of his day. It was chaos. There was international upheaval happening at that time. And I think we could probably identify with some of the things that um, that era was going through, that nation, what Isaiah as a believer went through. Empires were rising and rising and then falling. Nations were rising and then the nation of uh, Israel or Judah here was in peril. And 
but yet in the midst of all that, Isaiah writes that chapter 40, verse 31, but the wings like eagles. There's another one that's really encouraging in Isaiah. We're not as familiar with, but it's found in chapter 30, verse 15. You just keep seeing the grace of God through all the terrible things that can happen. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One, Make note of that. Isaiah loves to use that term. The Holy One of Israel has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. Israel was not willing. But did you see that promise? In quietness and trust. That's where we find our strength. You say, where is that strength at? Where is that strength? I don't, I've ran out of strength. I've ran out. And he's... That was in Isaiah 30, verse 15. And uh, Isaiah calls him Yahweh there, calls him God, calls him the Holy One of Israel. And he says, repentance and rest. Put your rest in Christ. He'd be saying, in quietness and trust is your strength. Yeah. So that's like the Isaiah 40. Yeah. You said he calls him Yahweh there. In my Bible, it says Lord God. Do you have the capital letters? On God, not on Lord. Not on Lord. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, um, actually, you know you're right. I think you are right. I think I have the capital letters on a G-O-D there. I, uh, pardon me there. So what is that? You know, I need to... Uh, I, I, did, I hadn't even noticed it, so I can't really... Uh, I can't tell you what the word... Usually, it's uh, you think of uh, God, and it can be like L, or you think of um, you know the the Creator God there. Um, I'm even looking for a note at the moment. I don't have any. I'm looking for what what the Hebrew would be. And I'm not getting much there. Uh, in verse 15, yeah. Uh, oh, okay. I do have a note there. It in Hebrew. Yahweh is usually rendered Lord, like what we're talking about. Um, and so I'm thinking, it, Lord God might be dealing. It might be a one word compacted in the Hebrew. I'll, uh, I need to look that out because that may not be the only time that that occurs. We'll uh, we'll definitely have to find out. Um, In Isaiah, you see mighty kings, rulers. You see magnificent kingdoms that are described in here. And then we see that where there is a nation chastened and then restored. But above all else, what you see in Isaiah is the Messiah. And this is what is known as a messianic book. Messianic Messiah uh, appealing to uh, who he is. This is the most messianic of all the Old Testament books. Uh, you, we see some very clear presentations of the Messiah. And of course, it has the peak uh, diamond, the, the jewel here coming out in Isaiah 53. And that whole section, the, the servant songs and, and such. And it just uh, gives the, the gospel and so clear a vision after we know the New Testament we look back at that and we see how clear it is and uh, it's, it's revealed 
there. And sometimes the Old Testament seems like it's concealed, but what does the New Testament do? It reveals those truths. Uh, Isaiah, uh, the name means salvation of the Lord. And salvation is the key theme of the book, ultimately. And there's different deliverances that are in this book or salvations. Uh, there's actually a deliverance of Judah um, from Assyrian invasion. The Assyrians attacked the uh, the northern ten tribes and, and uh, they <laughs> conquered them. Um, but Judah, they tried, but they didn't um, conquer them. God delivered them out of that. Another thing He did, He delivered them from the Babylonian captivity. After 70 years, they were released. Uh, Judah also uh, was delivered from uh, the Gentiles in general, in a lot of senses. Uh, you have deliverance of lost sinners from judgment. You know, you think of individuals. And even creation. Deliverance of creation from the bondage of sin. <laughs> and, you, and you'll see that Isaiah uses a lot of imagery, a lot of word pictures the way that he writes is uh, unlike uh, other writers in that he is so vast, so descriptive, and uh, you, you have to like the way that he words things and he makes it brilliant, makes it stand out. Um, as far as his family life is concerned, he was married and he had two sons, and both of their names um, kind of speak of how the book of Isaiah goes with judgment and restoration, that kind of thought. Also, another key chapter is Isaiah 6, which is where we're at tonight. We're going to try to go in pretty big chunks. And so it's six chapters. Actually, 12 chapters makes up one pretty good little part. Um, But he saw God's Son. He saw God's glory. Uh, Like I said, Holy One of Israel is a favorite name he uses for God. Um, There were different kings that reigned during the time that he was a prophet, uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and maybe even Manasseh. They usually don't list that, but it's it's uh, tradition says that Manasseh is the one who sawed him in two. We don't have any biblical aspect of that, but uh, as tradition goes, that's what it said. Um, he, I, Isaiah actually prophesied during. Uh, one of the worst times in the history of Israel, and Israel was becoming had become so corrupt, God was just going to take them out of His sight. And of course, we know the Assyrian army came up and and was very unmerciful, um, barbaric, ruthless. They were a war machine. As a matter of fact, historians uh, even today uh, say their military tactics that they used were really applauded. Uh, but they were uh, they were uh, very barbaric, no mercy, and so anybody that understands the art of war, uh, they would uh, give them quite the credit. And they emerged as a world power, and of course they did their amazing damage on those ten tribes, and they scattered them all over the lands. And uh, God calls them from a distant land to come down and do His work. Now Judah actually at this time had become, uh, let's say, very strong, but it was starting to go downhill. And I think you can kind of compare that with our nation because economically it was doing well. 
at one time commercially as far as the goods and its trades that it did. Military was good. The fortresses were magnificent. They had walls. You think of the uh, protection that they had around the city of Jerusalem. And so it, in, in some senses, it seemed to be doing really well. But underneath it all, we see the corruption and how evil and man can get even when they are supposed to know the one true God. And um, so whenever the king Uzziah died, and that's we meet him in Isaiah 6, and that's where Isaiah is given his um, commission to, to be the, that prophet. Um, whenever he died, Uzziah, there was a panic across the whole nation. Now, there were some tremors already, but you know when things are going real well, people ignore any kind of um, how can you say a little taps on the shoulder, <laughs> and then of course then God starts sending His prophets, and Isaiah is one of them. But the Lord is going to show Isaiah at this time where things are now are starting to be a little shaky, and now the king is dead, and they they look to him. He had been a good king, but he was a king that sat on a throne, and God is going to show Isaiah literally <laughs> and spiritually that. He's the one who sits on the throne. And uh, Isaiah gets that really quick. He's going to be terrified at the sight of God's holiness and as well as anybody should be. So there's idolatry and the foreign alliances that are uh, beginning to take shape. And, of course, those kind of things God has already warned them of, of not to get involved with. Uh, The Assyrians are going to get ready to destroy the northern kingdom uh, but God will deliver Judah from the Assyrians. And eventually, Jerusalem, though, will be destroyed. The Babylonians will come. Um, then there's a Persian ruler by the name of Cyrus who uh, is actually named, and he will release the Jews from captivity uh, that were in Babylon. So out of all of this, we, we get a lot of details on, on the blessings of future grace that that God has and we see God's wrath but we see through all of this a Savior, a Messiah and that the Messiah is going to die for the sins of the people. I think that's the most magnificent thing in Isaiah 53. It's so beautifully described. And so Isaiah's message is about the humility and the beauty of the Messiah, the Savior. If we were to take Isaiah and break it up, we could do it in two parts. Like I said, the first 39 chapters, condemnation. And the first 12 chapters are really messages delivered against Judah and Israel. And the first six chapters we'll take today, and it's mainly dealing with that. From chapters 13 through 23 on this first part, you're going to have judgment against the Gentiles also, not just uh, Israel and Judah. And then 24 through 27, we'll see future glory. So there's some songs in there implanted showing that there will be glory. Then he talks about the woes, the judgment from Assyria in 28 through 35. And then a little uh, interlude, historical interlude from 36 through 39. That's, That's the first part of Isaiah. The second part is comfort or consolation. And the Hebrew word 
takes it more than what we would think a comfort. You know, you you have a blanket comfort. <laughs> but this comfort in the Hebrew is dealing with strength, a strength type comfort. And after those thirty nine chapters, you need something like that. So in strength comfort in the Hebrew, it's it's more dealing with the the power or the strength of God, and that is what gives us the comfort. It's not just an economical or a political comfort, but it's the very strength of God Himself. And maybe this will help. It starts with God's greatness in forty through forty eight. you, you get almost like I am statements. I am God. I'm the only one. I'm the one and only Savior. You know, and it makes it very clear. From 40 through 48, I think it magnifies the Father there. You see the triune God in this because in 49 through 57, you've heard of the servant songs. Well, there we see the servant. Of course, the servant is who? The Son. The Messiah. And then in 58 through 66, the Spirit is emphasized much. And that's dealing with God's glory there. God's greatness, God's grace, God's glory. And servant, uh, it's a key word in Isaiah. A word of hope constantly smattered throughout the book of judgment. And then uh, when, when you think of the Messiah, here's what he presents. He presents even the birth of the Messiah. Uh, the ministry of John the Baptist is in Isaiah. Christ's anointing of the Holy Spirit is in Isaiah. How about the nation of Israel rejecting the Messiah? It's in Isaiah. How about the stumbling stone? The stone of stumbling? How often do we see that in the New Testament? It's quoted from this area right here. How about Christ's ministry to Gentiles, of all things? That's in Isaiah. How about Jesus' suffering? Jesus' death? His burial? His resurrection, and then His returning as the King. All of this is found in Isaiah. 700 years before Christ comes as the man-God. Isaiah is quoted more than any other prophet. And like I said, his his writing is just filled with imagery, uh, very expressive, very rich language that he uses. Uh, Redemption. There's so much in this book. If if you didn't have any other book in the Bible, you would have plenty here for the rest of your life. Uh, Redemption is a message for the whole world. Not just the nation of Israel, the whole world. Personal message of God's forgiveness. And all the way through, he's going to plea, he's going to give a, a passionate plea to the people to return to the Lord. Return. Repent. And I think... if with all this said, I think sometimes it closely parallels our situation where we're at today with how all the blessings that we have, but yet we hear the rumblings of things that sound so terrible and so evil and wicked that's happening. But the situation could be very comparable. And any time we go in the Old Testament, it seems like we, we can do that. We, we, we see it. Not to try to take it out of context, but I think it, it certainly is good encouragement for all of us. Yes. When you said that phrase, the Holy One of Israel, I have a note here that said it's used 26 times. 26. He likes that, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Quite quite often. The Holy One of Israel. He saw the Holy One. He heard the words, Holy, Holy, Holy. 
The holiness of God here is definitely seen. The judgment, righteousness of God, wrath of God. We see the characteristics of God in Isaiah. Well, why don't we uh, have a word of prayer? Father, we uh, thank You for who You are and uh, Your presentation of Your very character, Your very nature, and how You hate sin and how You judge it. You are righteous, and at the same time You are merciful, gracious, loving. All of that being seen, and of course, uh, points to Christ. Points to the central focus of what we believe in. And so thank you, and as we spend a little time in this book, help us to glean uh, some things that can help us look to you better and to live our life in the times that we live in. In your son's name, amen. Amen. Okay, um, the first chapter is going to be dealing with a courtroom scene, if we can use that kind of thought. And in in the... first verse, it talks about this vision of Isaiah. It tells who he is, the son of Amos. Uh, Isaiah could be really a, a pretty popular name, and so it identifies which Isaiah this is. And, and it's dealing mainly with Judah and Jerusalem, and that's, that's who he's basically prophesying to, although the message can definitely go to the northern tribes, but that's mainly who he uh, uh, prophesied to. And... Um, in verse 2, it sounds like we're going verse by verse here, but it says, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. <laughs> Listen. God speaks, right? And I think at the end of that verse, it says, They've revolted against me. In verse 4, you see a word that uh, iniquity, evildoers, corruptly. They abandoned the Lord. They despised the Holy One of Israel. We see that right off the bat right there in verse 4. They turned away from Him. And so in the first four verses, the charges are stated right there. And then from 5 through 15, we see that they are guilty. They're found guilty. This sounds like Romans 3 here in verse 5. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. The sole of the foot, even to the head, there's nothing sound in it. Sinful from head to foot, right? Bruises, welts, raw wounds, that kind of thing. Um... The land is desolate. The cities are burned. The fields, strangers are devouring with it. So there we see um, like a wretched victim as far as from head to toe and uh, uh, like a ravaged battlefield is the way that their, their land is. It, it, who knows? Now they might even have a, be having droughts, uh, you know, too. But it once been like a garden. and And this is a shock here. Right in verse 9, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like, what? Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. He's comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like the worst of the worst. And then he says in verse 10, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. There again, he uses it again. This is in the worst situation. And... um, What's sad, in 10 through 15, we see that they are a religious people. And sacrifices are mentioned in 11. Burnt offerings, I've had enough of the burnt offerings, rams and the cattle, bulls, lambs and goats. Uh, verse 13, worthless offerings. Your uh, incense is an abomination. Your new moons and Sabbaths, calling of assemblies. I can't even endure it. It's iniquity. 
and he says in verse 14, he hates their new moons and festivals. All the religious religiosity, uh, he just just blows it away and just tells them exactly uh, their religion is is no good. They went to the temple, did the sacrifices, brought their offerings, and God says, I want inward obedience. And He even says, I'll hide my eyes from you in verse 15. I won't listen to you. Your hands are covered with blood. And so we stop at 15, and we've seen the judgment that that He, uh, the verdict that He has on them, right? As we look at the court, but there is a prescription for this. There's an antidote. See, it's been nothing but bad news here all the way through 15 verses. But here comes good news. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, those things they weren't doing, and he'll show that in the next set of verses. So in 16 and 17, he's talking about repenting. Um, of course, it's only God that can make them clean, but they weren't, they weren't pursuing him, and they were doing evil. And, and then in verse 18 is that key verse there. Come now and let us reason together. And reason is a word that would be used in court. It means to decide a case in court. Let's decide this together. Come on. Let's get together. Let's look at this reason. Let's decide this. Look what you're doing. Look who I am. Look what I want. I want I want you to be right. Come. Now, let us reason, says the Lord. And look at this. After those 15 verses that were scathing, though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, They'll be like wool. Can we identify with that? We were the first 15 verses too, weren't we? But here, he takes the sins and says they can be forgiven. Turn it white like snow, like the white wool. Uh, And then he's talking about consenting, obeying. uh, And and I'll bless you. So, that, um, that is the judge. The judge, it's like he steps off... What is that called where he sits at? The bench. (laughs) The bench. (laughs) Steps off the bench and offers pardon. Okay, here's the pardon. You know, they've been guilty. I mean, the 15 verses, I mean, I don't know how more graphic that you can get. I mean, that that is graphic as can be as he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, their religiosity was something that was uh, just odious to him repent return to me that I'll wipe the record I'll wipe the slate clean grace and mercy I think is seen here after those 15 verses and then boom you see here let's reason together though your sins are as scarlet as red blood they'll be as white as snow cover you well that means their sins need to be confessed what kind of sins do they have I'm going to blow through this really quick. 21 through 31, and I've got that on your outline. There's murder, murder, there's robbery, there's bribery, uh, exploiting the helpless, there's idolatry. Um, When he said, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, if you look in verse 23, it says, they do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. They take advantage of the, the helpless people. 
Idolatry is all involved with this. They're like a harlot, it says in 21. Um, and then God shows His character. The Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. There's still going to be ones who repent. There's going to be a remnant. Isaiah is famous for that remnant teaching. Isaiah 6, for instance. Um, righteousness. Transgressors and sinners will be crushed together. Anyway, that's chapter 1. Chapter 2, God has a promise. He's got some future work. First five verses is kind of dealing with His very presence. And of course, you think here of... Uh, you think kingdom. You think of the being in the presence of God. You think of heaven. You think of the eternal state. I mean, we'll read just a few. The word which Isaiah, here's the word again, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So he's getting this vision from God. And of course, he's going to write it down and he's going to tell him. No, we'll come about that in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. So now he even gets into the Gentiles that he's going to bless them. He's going to bring them to him. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion. We can see that in present time. But I think it even extends all the way out to eternity where you get the ultimate worship but these people are going to be real and and uh, this is going to be a time that uh, he, he is real to, to them and he you know he's going to judge between the nations he'll render decisions for many peoples and look at this we're fam- uh, we we know this is a famous verse they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation will not lift up sword against nation And never again will they learn war. There will be a time. No more war. Swords in the plowshares. Of course, you know, even have this at um, certain... um, Isn't it at the Capitol? Or the Capitol in Washington? Do we have that in our Capitol here in Jeff City? That, That verse there, they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks... I know even in some um, some courts or even Supreme Courts, they, they will have that verse. They've probably taken it off. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? That, I think that's, that's true there. That's for sure. It's there. Yeah. It's the best example right there. Do they really know what that means, right? Uh, chapter 2, we, the verse by verses, it's a time of righteousness and peace. And then he starts bringing on the judgment aspect of again in uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 6, after we've seen that time of peace. Isn't it interesting he keeps bringing forth the grace and mercy of God in a time where there is ultimate peace with God? It's just a little snippet here and there. Ultimately, you know, that's what's going to happen. But in the meantime, mostly dominating is a judgment. Um, you're going to get in this section, of course, Assyria and the conquest of Israel and Babylonia's conquest of Judah. This is kind of being introduced there. 
uh, why is God going to judge His people? And you're going to see uh, uh, idolatry, uh, covetousness, pride, exploiting the poor. He he just reiterates again what he's what he has said already, and he'll say it again. And how is God going to judge His people? Well, in chapter three. He's going to remove some things from them. And here's how God starts to judge. He says in verse 1, For behold, the Lord God... There we go again with uh, the capital letters G-O-D, isn't it? The Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah what? Both supply and support, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water, food and water. Uh, two basic necessities he's going to take from them. And he continues. It's going to be leaders. Of course, he mentions the mighty men, you know, the military, the, the judge, the prophets, the diviner, the elders, the captain, the 15 honorable men, counselors, enchanters, whatever, but uh, prophets, judges, the entire support system would would disintegrate. He's going to take those away from them. And it's interesting, as he's judging the people, and of course, many men are going to be killed in, in battles, but he talks about Judah's women. And notice how many things they had at their disposal at one time. Uh, verse 16, Moreover, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are proud... And now he gets really graphic and explains all the, the things that um, they were prideful about. They walk with heads held high and seductive eyes. They go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet. Therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. He's going to strip them of everything that they had. And of course, they uh, took pride in their beauty that they had. Even the sweet perfume that's in 24, the belts that they have are going to be ropes. Their scalps are going to be uh, plucked out scalps. Instead of fine clothes, they're going to be wearing sackcloth. Um, they're going to have brands on them instead of the beautiful skin that they had. And it says young men will fall by the sword. And then you go into chapter 4, verse 1. And it says, For seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. We'll take care of ourselves. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our approach. That means you have um, seven women to one man at that time. They, that many will have lost their lives in battle. Yeah. Back in verse 17, the very last phrase of that verse, what does yours say? Make their foreheads bare. Um, this phase, what do you have there? This is really different than that. It says, will lay bare their secret parts. Hmm. Well, that translation is dominating, then, isn't it? <laughs> scalps. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is your say? We make their scalps there. Yeah. It's just interesting. Yeah. How different those two. Yeah, I think what it's saying they're going to lose everything, and and their husbands and uh, they profited from their husbands who had probably committed crimes to get all the stuff that they had, and so many men are going to be killed in battle, and the women uh, we see that they're going to be stripped to to nothing, and boy that that's graphic in God's judgment, right? This is why. I think a lot of people say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. Because, boy, does that just rip right into it, you know. I said that when I first became a Christian. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. Bart Larson actually said, instead of thinking about how horrible God is, think about how bad the sin is. Which, of course, that's what I think now. Right. I remember saying that very much. Right. And he and he's been doing that to show what their sin was, their idolatry and their pride and uh, the the covetousness and bribery, robbery, murder, all of those things, all those things are going on in this nation, and it's becoming even more rampant. You know, the the multiple shootings, whether it be schools and what have you, that it's almost like it it's almost nothing new to hear about it now. You know, and of course the media makes a big deal out of it and say, oh, we need to take away their guns. Of course, when you have um, um, Cain and Abel, you had a man that committed the first murder and he didn't need a gun. He just had threw a rock. Anyway, um, so we see the sins and we see the, the result of that and uh, God has to be uh, righteous here. What do you say, Carolyn? That's... That's the whole point because outwardly they were looking pretty good. Look at all the blessings they had. We must be good. We must be doing it right. Look at all the things that God has given us. And, you know, we worship Him and we bring our sacrifices and our offerings. And it was all outward. All outward. Well, that's a promise about God's future work. And you see that most of that future work there is His judgment. But in chapter 4, verse 2, he brings also the good news again. And we see a future work here. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion, over assemblies, a cloud by day. Does it sound familiar? Even smoke. And the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. So he still has his remnant. There are going to be some people who are going to be called holy. Uh, They've been recorded in the book of life. I think you could say there too. And uh, I think it's interesting. Fire by day, cloud by night. Or cloud by day, fire by night. It goes you back to the time of uh, Exodus and Moses. But uh, God talks about this branch of the Lord, and that's a messianic title again there. um, It's a shoot from the stump, from the stump of Jesse. And out of Jesse comes David. 
David is, you know, also a picture of of uh, messianic uh, revelations. You know, he's a good illustration of uh, the King of Kings, and uh, he was a good king. But the branch of the Lord there we we see. So every time that you see all this terrible judgment and because of sin, and then boom, there comes up a little bit about the Messiah, the branch of the Lord. Don't forget that. Because implanted right there in such a terrible situation, he's talking about a remnant. God has always had his remnant. From the very outset, his remnant. From the time uh, when there was destroying by the flood, God had his remnant right there, didn't he? Yeah. Can I ask another question? Yeah, I probably won't know it. No. <laughs> in verse 3, he's talking about he who left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem all the time holy. Is he talking about the new Jerusalem? I, I think, first of all, we'll start with Isaiah and what he's writing at is, and, and this is where a lot of times you get something that builds on and, and will be an ultimate time, you know, when we have, when we're all uh, in the kingdom of God, right? Um, but there is the sense of right there on the spot, this meant something to them um, there, at, to Isaiah. In the, in the near future, there was still going to be, and, and they were, even though uh, some of them, many of them were carted off to Babylon. He saved them through even that time period and then brings them back. And that would have been uh, some people that would have been, still yet there were believers. There, were, there was that remnant even at that time. The remnant had to go through a pretty tough period. I mean, and of course, Daniel. You think of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? <laughs> Um, and there were, you know, many of them that were were believers, even though um, they they were carted off. That still yet he he kept that remnant, and then he he brought them back. So that has meaning in both their time. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I, um, it's not that he's just going to uh, just uh, destroy them, and that, and that would be the end of it. There, uh, he you know he brings them through that. And so he, he, you know, even through all that bloodshed that they're going to have, and it's going to be, you know, we read this word right here and we go, wow, it must have been pretty bad, but just think about how horrendous this was going to be. So we get into chapter 5. This is used in the New Testament. Jesus um, will use this parable here. It's a vineyard. It's a song of Isaiah about the vineyard. And we're probably very familiar with it, but the first few verses tells what God did. God did everything that He possibly could for them. Everything. And it shows there has to be judgment on a fruitless vineyard. So it says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest mine, the best. He built a tower in the middle of it. He also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. Well, that's what you would expect, right? But it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, the men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Was there? Any, can you name anything else I could have done? I did everything that I possibly could. Why? When I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? What else could have been done? 
So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. So now he starts explaining what he's going to do with this vineyard. I'll remove its hedge. It'll be consumed. I'll break down its wall. It'll become trampled. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. I'll not care for it. I'll have no rain on it. He says at the end of verse 7, he looked for justice. He saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, a cry of distress. And so that's you get the woes to the wicked now, starting at verse 8. The first one, woe in verse 8. Woe to those who add house to house, join field to field. They're, they're coveting. And they would take from people. And then they'd add on. The rich took away the land from the poor. Sounds familiar, right? All throughout human history, that's what happened. In 11 through 17, you might see something like drunkenness that's involved. Carelessness about what they did with God. 18, 19, they were deceptive. They were prideful. The injustice that was going on. And so God shows in 26 through 30 that He's going to chasten them. It's going to come from um, His people that He's chosen to, to bring on uh, some judgment. Uh, warnings and ultimately it'll, it'll be Babylon. Uh, it's interesting, verse 26, he says, I'll lift up a standard to the distant nation. This is Assyria. And we'll whistle for it. Gather them together from the ends of the earth. These are evil, wicked people. He's going to call them together. And behold, it will come with speed swiftly. A mighty army. Quick army. No one in its weary or stumbles. They don't slumber. They don't sleep. Nor is the belt as a waist undone, nor is a sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp, and all its bows are bent. The hooves, hooves of its horses seem like flint, and chariot wheels like a whirlwind. It's roaring like a lioness, and it roars like young lions. You know, see all the, the imagery, the, the beautiful words that he uses to get a picture of what's going to happen. It's growling, and that's what he's bringing to his people. And then we get chapter 6. And this is the call of Isaiah. Not until chapter 6 do we get this. You think of Jeremiah and you see it right off the bat in chapter 1. Well, chapter 6 is where we get um, this at. And, And one would probably say, what right does Isaiah have to pronounce judgment on the leaders and, and the worshipers? What right does he have to do that? Well, in this chapter is his call to ministry. As he saw the Lord, of course, he first starts out with, woe is me. He saw the Lord. When our world tumbles around us, somebody has said, it is time to look upward. It is good to look at the view from heaven's viewpoint. And that's what Isaiah is going to do as he starts his ministry. He's going to look up. He's going to be looking in the temple here. Verse Chapter 6, verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. This is a chapter, I don't know how many times I've heard different preachers do messages on this chapter 6. If one wanted to start on the holiness of God, this is a great place to start with. Um... We, there's no way we can even treat this with any kind of justice. You know, but as far as time is... Yeah. In the book, in, in 
Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, he makes the comment, and I wrote it in the margin, that chapter 6 is one of the most vivid disclosures of divine holiness in all of Scripture. There you go. This is the pinnacle, I think, right here. And how can we take a couple of minutes and even do it right? That's part of the thing about covering a book, I guess, quick. Can you believe we've done five chapters already? Are you getting the idea that if we broke this apart and did verse by verse, I really would tell you that there's no way we can get through all this. And by the time we're done with the first 39 chapters, there may not be anybody left. (laughs) I'm just saying, when we were in Romans and we did the first three chapters, it, it was devastating. It was almost a downer in a sense. It was constantly hitting on, you know, what mankind is in his sin. Well, this is a great place for Isaiah to start. God gets it started off right for him, and there he is, and, and we assume that he's in the temple here, right? Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face. Because God is holy, with two He covered His feet, with two He flew, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. He sees the Lord, looks up. That's where it starts. We see this holy God, an awesome God that He is. And, of course, I think this is how much He saw. I don't know, but He saw the glory of God. And I would tend to think this would be... a something in the sense of maybe like the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, if you see God. What's that? In the first verse where he says he saw the Lord. Yeah, that would be Adonai. Uh-huh. Why would you use that? That is considered to be king. And he's sitting on his throne. And so there, you know, it's like we're servants, we're slaves, in the Hebrew, Adonai is that that Lord over the servants, okay. the one sitting on the throne. So, uh, and here's what's happening: the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. And you just see it that just barreling out. Here comes this smoke, just filling the whole place up. And He's seeing all this, and He re- when you see God. The first thing you want to do is what? <laughs> Bow down. I said, Woe is me, for I'm ruined. Peter saw Jesus after he had been fishing, and then it just dawned on him, Wow, this is this is the this is the holy one. And you know, he wanted to get away from me, you know. we recognize our sinfulness. We recognize His holiness. And, and here Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm wasted. Everything you know, is, is, is a desolation because I'm a man of unclean lips. Things that He even spoke and did. it. But look at this. And I live among a people of unclean lips. You know, he doesn't start, first of all, even with the nation there. He starts with himself. But he recognizes this is what I'm surrounded with. And so he's saying everybody is, is sinful. And, and he recognizes, and this is Isaiah, a man of God. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Yahweh of hosts. This is the King. My eyes have seen that. He saw this in this, in this vision. He actually had a, a view of this, and it's something that, of course, he would 
could never forget. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. After Isaiah recognizes his sin, and that's really what God wants. He wants us to see that we are sinful, that we are doomed, that we are judged in in our sins and there's nothing good about us. And that's whenever He brings this cleansing that He has. I, I don't know what it would be like with this the tongs here touching his mouth physically uh, whatever it was it definitely symbolized a cleansing and he said your sin is forgiven yeah it's dealing with the temple there and yeah, of course he's using crazy. fire to cleanse I mean it, it was like what came off of that was then that was the purification of the offering when that was Right. Yeah, and and for something to be cleansed with with fire, that's that's how serious the nature of sin is, and the, the cleansing that was that was needed. So his sins are forgiven, right there. And as soon as um, that happens, I heard the voice of the Lord. He's been seeing this now. He, here's a voice saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And of course right there is a mouthful right there. Who will go for us? We recognize that this is dealing with the Trinity. We know from New Testament, uh, it's not. he's not just talking the angels here. right? He's talking about the, uh, the Holy Spirit. He's talking about uh, His Son. Um, but he says, Who's going to go for us? And then, what, what's Isaiah going to say? How's he going to respond? Here am I. Send me. It's that famous... <laughs> Isn't that something we're going for? <laughs> Almost to the extreme opposite here. Send me. And he did. And he went to his own people. And they didn't receive it. Like the people did for Jonah. And Jonah didn't appreciate it. And Isaiah here knows that the message that he's going to give, that people aren't going to hear it. Because God tells him that's what the, it's coming up here. He says, "Here, go and tell this people what I'm telling them. And by the way, they can keep on listening and they can look. They're not going to be able to understand. Their ears are dull. Their eyes are dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes. You can see this in the, uh, the parable uh, of Matthew 13. Jesus quotes from this. And... Uh, that there are going to be many, and he was more or less telling this is what Israel was going to do. They they weren't going to hear his message, and um, but there's a certain remnant that is going to hear and understand, and he will open their hearts up to do that. Um, then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, How long is this going to until cities are devastated and without inhabitant? Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. That's how that's how long this is going to be. Well, that's, he gets his answer. And the Lord has removed men from far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Devastating. But here we go again. Yet. But. But God. There will be a tenth portion in it. And it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Remember the branch of the Lord earlier? 
the stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump coming out of something that looks like nothing. And that's he's going to bring it to that point. And he did. We look at that prophecy and the people are blind. Isaiah's ministry would make them even more blind. They're already blind, but his ministry that he'd have was, would make them more blind and the ears more deaf. And the more the people resist God's truth, the less they are able to receive God's truth. But a remnant would survive. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? That's great news. God could be a God that said, I've, I've had it. I've done with it. I, I gave them their best. Look at this. I'm done with people. I did the flood. This time, I'm just going to totally just devastate it. <laughs> but no, this is the grace and mercy of God in the midst of His wrath. Yeah, Bart. Carmel and I were watching um, one of the things from the Living Air Conference last night, one of the Q&A sessions. And... Nathan Dusen mm-hmm. he was commenting on oh the question was I don't remember what the question was but he was commenting on in heaven you know, it, may, it may as well be written up there free gift and then on the floor of hell written deserved hmm. like, that's, that's good that's really good it's all a free gift yeah that's um there was a free gift here to Isaiah. And one of the few that believed God, trusting God at that time. But God has a remnant. He's going to make sure. And He's never had a time when His remnant has not been here. Through all the worst times, through some of the worst nations and kings. and There it is. Yep. Exactly. And that's the whole point. A lot of people say, well, that's not fair for God to choose some and then others not to choose. Well, the whole point is that He he really, why is He saving any? Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. What? You're a man of God. I'm a man of unclean lips. We are all in that boat. But there He is in that great offer. So, you see good news mixed in with all this bad news, this judgment. I think it's very encouraging to us as we approach Messiah. Yep. To keep believing that truth. Um, you can be wary, but at the same time, remember where the strength is. And we have that strength. Anyway, that's the first six chapters, and the next six chapters are still going to be dealing with uh, Judah. Um, but in chapter 7, you'll start seeing even the birth of the Messiah comes up right after chapter 6. Isn't it amazing how God just places these where He does? Heavy stuff, real heavy, just in the, just glossing over things, looking at it. We still see the Gospel, don't we? 